Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The champs got off the mat last night at Staples. Big time performance last night. In fact, I'd even go as far as to say, or you might go as far as to say, they had a statement win. Statement being, we are back. Now, those are not my words. However, they are the words of Anthony Davis after he made this play to ice the game last night. And Jokic is going to fire it over to Capasso. His re-block by Davis. Lakers are going to win it. Anthony Davis in the front court with three, with two, with one, and the streamers are coming down at Staples Center. AD, the defensive play at the end, and the Lakers end their losing streak, and they're alone in the So AD, what's good, baby? AD getting it done on both ends, and then he did seem to mouth, we're back, we're back. After that big block at the finish, a big-time finish to a big-time effort by AD. In fact, it was so big, Magic Johnson tweeted the following after the game, and I quote, Anthony Davis was huge tonight without LeBron and Dennis Schroeder scoring 25 points in the Lakers' big win over the Jazz. So a lot of people were coming for Irv after that tweet, mocking Irv, clowning Irv, because, well, frankly, a lot of people have nothing better to do than clown Irv for his tweets. And when you do that, you just show that you really don't get it. You show that you've got nothing better to do than clown a guy who has nothing better to do than troll the rest of you. Like, when this guy tweets out a fact or a statement on the game that has absolutely no insight whatsoever, that's the bit. That's the brand. That's the joke. Have you ever seen how many retweets he gets? Have you ever seen how many favorites he gets as a result of that bit, of that brand? So he made that mistake. Or was it? Let me get to that in a minute. But he makes a mistake, right? Get over it. Because here is another truth. Dopes, most of the tweet was in fact accurate. In fact, almost all of it was accurate. Anthony Davis was huge. The game last night, which means tonight, was accurate when he tweeted it. And the Lakers were without LeBron and Dennis Schroeder. And Davis did have 25. And the Lakers did get a big win over a team. It's just that that team was the Denver Nuggets and not the Utah Jazz like he tweeted out. Who cares? So what? So he typed the Jazz instead of the Nuggets. Maybe it was like autocorrect. Or it happens. It happens to us all. It happens to us all. I just love the fact that he did not take it down. Like he stuck by it. When you come with a take that hot, when you come with a scorching hot take like the one he thumbed out, you do not take it down just because you got one word wrong. You stand by it. You're going to kill this guy for one word. You're going to kill this guy for getting one word wrong. You're going to kill him for that. He got 20 of 21 words in that sentence correct. That's a 95% hit rate. How about we focus on the good news for once, not the bad news? I mean, hell, if a basketball player made 95% of the shots he took, he'd be the greatest player ever. And you want to come for this guy because he got a team wrong? Yes, he appeared to think that the Lakers had played the Jazz when, in fact, they played the Nuggets. At least he was in the right sport. 
It's not like the guy said, hey, uh, AD was huge in that Laker win over the Yankees or the New Jersey Devils or Manchester U. I got news for you, too. I'm not even convinced it was a mistake. At this point, I think that Irv or whoever is at the controls of that feed put it there on purpose to try to hook people like me and the rest of you to get you to react. I'm on to you, Irv, or whatever intern you gave your phone to. I'm not saying you're a good analyst. You're not. You're one of the worst. But there is no way that you're that dumb with it. No one likes or retweets from me or no more. Well, not not that you ever got one. No likes or retweets from me, Irv, because I'm on to you, dude. I know what you're about. I know what that feed's about. And I'm not convinced that he didn't put the jazz on purpose. Anyway, last night was not about Irv or the tweets. It was about the Lakers and how they showed up against the Jazz or the Nuggets or whoever the hell they played last night because that's a game they had to have, and they got it. They beat a hot Western Conference opponent, and they did so without two of their best players. Beating the Nuggets on May 3rd does not mean they're going to be holding the trophy once again when it's all over, but I'll tell you what it does mean. It's a reminder of why you cannot throw dirt on these guys just yet. Lose that game, and then everybody's got their shovels out. Lose that game, and everybody's talking about how Father Time is still undefeated. Because now he's kicking LeBron's ass. Lose that game, and everybody's talking about how starting a season 71 days after the last one ended was just too much to ask. Especially for a guy with as many miles as LeBron. And a guy like AD, who always seems to get hurt, even in the best of times. Lose that game and everybody is burying the Lakers. Hell, win that game. And there's still no shortage of people burying the defending champs. But that did not happen. Somehow that crew, who honestly mailed it on Sunday, came back with a vengeance on Monday. I'm not saying they can just flip the switch. I'm saying it looked like they did last night. They looked like a totally different team last night. They played with intensity. They battled. They look like the Lakers last night. But it's not just about getting a win to move them ahead of Dallas in the standings. It's about the fact that they showed up with some urgency. Man, they were motivated. They were an actual unit. They knew they had to have it, and they got it. And by the way, did anybody really think the Lakers were just going to shut it down? Just quit. Just go home. Yes, They've had a couple of tough months. Yes, everything did not come together when AD and LeBron came back. But did you really think the defending champs were just going to shut it down, rip the plug, and shout one, two, three, Cancun, when they broke the huddle? Come on, man. I know they're in fifth. I know they're only a game ahead of having to play in the playing tournament. I know they're pissed about having to play in the playing tournament. Just like every other team that's in 6th, 7th, and 8th is pissed about it. I get why they are. Before this year, if you finished in 7th or 8th, you would wrap up the regular season, go into the first round of the playoffs, you'd already be in. Now you have to enter a tournament for the right to enter something that in years past you were already in. That's more work and more stress on top of what is already a really difficult season. I know why they're pissed. 
except crying about it's not going to help because that play-in tournament is not going away. And despite LeBron trying to break off whoever came up with that idea, nobody's getting fired over it either. If being the defending champs and having to play in the play-in sucks, big dog, embrace the suck. Because you know what would suck even more? Missing the playoffs altogether, especially after you made it sound as if you running back or running it back was a mere formality after you and AD came back. That's obviously not the case. But last night was evidence that it is still too soon to bury you all. Just know everybody's got their shovels out. Trust that. Everybody except Irv who is still celebrating your enormous win over the Steelers last night. He's playing, y'all. This just in, two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they're just 35. More than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness, and there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss. How about that? Keeps offers both and offers a simple, stress-free way to keep your hair. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months so you do not have to leave your home. Plus, low-cost treatment starting at only 10 bucks a month and Keeps offers generic versions. Discreet packaging, proven results. Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of the competition. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results, so you want to act on this thing right now. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash Rome. Receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash Rome and get your first month for free. keeps.com slash Rome. Ben Golliver is my guest. Ben, it's good to have you back. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, Jim. Thanks so much for having me. Ben, today's the day. Bubble Ball finally drops. So let me first ask you, what kind of emotions are you feeling right now? It's your first book. It's out in the world. Are you excited? Are you relieved? Is it something else? What's going through your mind? No, it's relief, man. This was an absolute grind. You know, I lived in Disney World for 93 days, 92 nights. And yes, we were all counting during that experience, right? I mean, it was it was not easy. The restrictions, the health protocols, uh, you know, we couldn't drive anywhere really um, you know, couldn't go anywhere uh, other than to the gym to watch these playoff games. And I threw myself into it completely. I took one week off after the bubble and I immediately started the book writing process. And, you know, it's pretty much carried me to this day. I mean, there's always something to do when you're putting together a book. So for me, it's just uh, almost a year's worth of work coming together into a single project. It's uh, the biggest thing I've ever done, and I'm feeling great about it. All right, so Ben, talk about the process. You just mentioned it, but you also had a really interesting Instagram video where you laid out how you wrote that book so quickly. For instance, how many words did the publisher expect, and when did they want it? What was that process? Oh, man, so I I agreed to write 90,000 words, and I basically had two months to do it. So you pencil it out. That's 1,500 words a night. I was pretty much grinding from basically 7 p.m. to midnight almost every night, still trying to cover the NBA as it was unfolding, you know, this season and just basically treating this like a moonlighting job. Um, You know, thankfully, I made it through in one piece, uh, and I'm really happy with how the book came out. Look, it hits a lot of the major themes. 2020 was one of the most important years in NBA history when you're talking about the China controversy with Hong Kong, uh, the shutdown uh, because of the pandemic, Kobe Bryant's tragic death, and, of course, the comeback at Disney World, right? So I touch on all that stuff, the business implications, the public health stuff. 
it's all rolled into one, the social justice activism. Uh, there's layers to this book, although, of course, it's a basketball story first. Ben Golliver is joining us, the author of Bubble Ball, and that book is out today. Ben, something else you said, that the bubble is for grinders. What do you mean by that, and then what kind of a toll did that take on everybody within? Well, just look who was left standing, right? I mean, it's LeBron James, Jimmy Butler, uh, Jamal Murray. I mean, the kinds of players who succeeded there are guys who are just completely devoted to their crafts. They just want to have basketball first and nothing else, right? I mean, they were able to adapt to living in these Disney World hotel rooms, which are typically for, like, you know, families of four coming down in the Honda Odyssey minivan to get to Orlando for a summer break. I mean, that's where these guys were staying, right? So it was a big adjustment for their lives. It was tough on me, too, Jim. You know, I put on weight. I wasn't sleeping well. I was really anxious. I felt isolated from my family. I mean, all those feelings came together. And so uh, you know, that's why when you get to the end of it and the Lakers win the title, you know, they're popping champagne, but they're yelling out, we're free, we're free. They're not yelling out, we won the title, because they all got the, uh, earned the right to go home. So it was kind of like half uh, New Year's Eve celebration, half college graduation, uh, you know, they were very glad to have the trophies, but also really glad to hit the first flight smoking. Ben Golliver is joining us. Hey ben, to that point that you said, I gained weight, I was anxious. I remember when you were there, you and I were talking about the physical isolation and the initial quarantine. Like, What was it like when you were trying to get your 10,000 steps in in the hotel room? Physically, mentally, how big of a toll did that take on you personally? No, I mean, Jim, that's become my legacy, man. I've been covering the NBA since 2007. Every, all anybody wants to talk about is me walking back and forth in my hotel room, man. I, I'm sure you could probably relate. Sometimes every once in a while a video comes out. It sticks with you. I mean, that's my video. Uh, eight steps at a time to get like eight or nine miles in my hotel room. I'm sure they probably had to change the carpet when I was done with it. You know, probably put a few uh, footholds into it. But look, uh, you know, that was all part of the plan. Uh, I didn't want my life to change all that radically when I went down there. And so you had to find ways to make compromises. The food was a compromise, too. I mean, I still have nightmares about that brown veggie meatloaf with the brown sauce, you know, just looking like a fat brick. I mean, I could, you know, these were things that are going to stick with me for a long time. I was going to say, what was the food like in the bubble and how was your life away from the court? Well, about halfway through the bubble, they opened up the room service menu, and that was a godsend, right? Because at least you could get Caesar salad, soups, you know, the typical stuff that you would expect. I mean, off the court, it was just uh, Groundhog's Day. You know, every day was the same. We're taking circles, uh, laps around the, um, you know, around the campus, getting our steps in 95-degree heat. You wave at Eric Spolster when he walks by. You uh, wave at Brad Stevens when he walks by. And then you get to the gym and watch basketball. You know, on a typical day, I might see Giannis, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, uh, Chris Paul, LeBron, Anthony Davis, Damian Lillard, Carmelo Anthony, all in an eight-hour period. You know, that's eight Hall of Famers fighting for a title in the same day. I don't think we're ever going to see that in the same place ever again. Ben Golver is joining us. His book, Bubble Ball, is out today. Yeah, but in a typical day, Ben, you might also see Kawhi Leonard driving a golf cart in circles in a parking lot. What was the context for that, and what did you make of that scene? Well, when the Bucks had their shutdown, all these players were like, well, what do we do? We don't have practice. We don't have games. And they were trying to figure out how do they put the bubble back together, right? And so these guys were dealing with free time for the first time in more than a month. So, yeah, Kawhi Leonard's doing, uh, you know, doing uh, donuts in the uh, parking lot like he's a 75-year-old senior citizen, right, in a golf cart because they can't drive cars. They can't go anywhere. Uh, you got Dwight Howard just kind of hanging out at a bus stop. No bus is showing up. He's just sitting there you know, on the phone. I mean, these guys were really trying to find ways to, um, you know, piece this bubble back together. 
LeBron and Chris Paul wound up calling Barack Obama for help. Michael Jordan got involved. I mean, that was a really tense moment in the bubble. And I lay out that scene kind of minute by minute in terms of what the Milwaukee Bucks were uh, you know, planning and, and how they executed it during their, uh, their protest, which I think made national news everywhere. Ben Galbert joining us. Awesome. One more thing. What about JaVale McGee fishing from a dock? Now, JaVale is JaVale. JaVale will do JaVale things. I mean that in the best way possible. When you see something like that, did that seem totally normal in that moment, or did that always seem a little bit surreal? No, it was very surreal. I mean, guys were fishing everywhere. I was fishing, Jim. I never thought I'd be out there fishing, too. But, you know, that, that was the world there. Uh, very limited options. You know, they threw a pool party one time. I don't think anybody showed up. I mean, they were trying whatever they could to keep these guys busy. But when you're in a Disney World campus where you've got four layers of security, Disney security, NBA security, um, local police, uh, sheriff's deputies, I mean, your options are very limited. And I try to get into the uh, the mental impacts of that. You know, we heard from players talking about how challenging it was, really how it, it tested them. And you know, some guys were feeling depressed and isolated. I mean, that was all part of the experience, too. We're talking to Ben Golver. His book is out today. You know, Ben, so there was actually basketball that was played and some really good basketball. Lakers ended up winning that whole thing. What about the ring and LeBron? What do you think that ring means to LeBron? Where would he rank it among the four that he has right now? Well, I think 2016 is always going to be the biggest, right? When you're talking about quality of competition, when you look at how good that Golden State Warriors team was, 73 wins, but... LeBron has said it's one of his favorites and, and one of the most uh, challenging ones that he's won. And to me, the key is no asterisk, right? I mean, they went 16-5 and five through the playoffs. He was phenomenal. Anthony Davis was phenomenal. Um, and you look at the moves that teams made in response to the bubble, it just validated the whole bubble experience. You know, the Sixers, the Rockets, the Clippers, the Bucks, they all made big changes in response to what happened at Disney World. So to me, that's why that title counts, and it should be remembered as quite the achievement. I mean, uh, you know, for LeBron, he loves playing to the crowds. And, you know, there was not much crowd there. You know, Jim, when they won the title, he had to come over and spray guys like me with champagne because there was nobody else to celebrate with. It's a little bit different when you're dealing with, uh, you know, media schmucks like me compared to Jack Nicholson or Rihanna. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. That's actually awesome. How about that moment where he was on the phone with his mom, Gloria? How would you describe that scene? What happened there? It was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it was, it was so humanizing. She couldn't be down there in the bubble. And so, again, it's just this isolation feeling that everybody feels that's separated from their families. He calls her up and basically says, hey, mom, are you proud of me? And she's like, are you kidding? Come on, LeBron. This is title number four. Of course I'm proud of you. And I'll never forget that. I mean, cigar in hand, champagne right by his side. I mean, it's just one of those just really surreal uh, celebrations. I mean, typically you're in an arena with 20,000 people chanting your name. Here you have to FaceTime mom because there's no. Ben Galver joining me for a few more moments. His book is out today. Ben, so when you look at the current season and you see how the playoffs are shaping up now, how different are these playoffs going to be compared to the playoffs in the bubble? Obviously differences, but how different? Totally different. I mean, you're not going to have one single site, right? So guys are flying around everywhere. You're going to have the big arenas rather than the small arenas they use down in Disney World. And you're going to have uh, potentially guys missing time with protocol violations. We're seeing that this week with Dennis Schroeder and the Lakers, right? So all of those things are going to make it even more unpredictable. Going into the bubble, I thought three teams had a chance to win it, the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Bucks, and the Lakers wound up winning. Uh, but there were some surprises along the way. I think this upcoming playoff is going to be full of surprises, twists and turns. I think there's probably seven or eight teams that can win the title this year. And normally I don't say that. Normally I just say stick to the favorites. But this year with the Lakers kind of uh, you know slumping right now, 
with the Nets trying to get Harden back, I do think it's really wide open. Right, so, Ben, you referenced the Clippers a couple of times. How different is this year's Clippers team compared to last year's team? Well, they want to be different. You know, new coach, Rondo, you know, some new pieces, but they still suffer from some of the same problems. They got to get downhill. They got to get to the basket. They got to get to the free throw line more. And they got to be better in clutch situations. I mean, these have been problems for them ever since they got uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George together. I don't know if you saw the game over the weekend, Jim. Can we talk about Jokic destroying the Clippers? I mean, just absolutely pirouetting around them. I came away from that game thinking not only is Jokic the MVP of this season, I think that's a clear, easy answer. He might be the best player in basketball. I'm not saying he is, but he needs to be in that conversation. And I've never said that before. I mean, to me, it's always been like LeBron, Katie, Giannis at this point, and maybe Steph if you want to keep him in there. Make sure you're mentioning Jokic's name, too. I was going to say, what about Steph? Now, and I want to get into this a little bit later on, Ben, but I want your thoughts. Steph, Steph has done some pretty amazing things in his career, but have you ever seen him do what he's doing right now? No, the April was absolutely spectacular, and it's just amazing what he's carrying with that group. For them to basically go 500, and he has by far the best scoring month of his entire career, it just says a lot about what he's working with. I really cannot wait for Clay Thompson to come back, kind of give them a boost. And, uh, you know, I hope that they get aggressive in this summer in terms of trades. They got some draft picks, you know, they potentially got some salaries they could move. I hope they can get him some more help because it's fun to watch him score 40, but it's a lot more fun to watch him score 40 in a win. Hey, Ben, really quickly, you mentioned Clay. Is there, it's, it's almost impossible to know, and certainly Clay's injuries were different and more significant than even Steph's. Any idea what he might look like when he does come back? Well, my big concern is defense in terms of his activity level. Clay really liked to get down in a stance and hawk guys. You know, he'd follow them anywhere on the court, try to make their life as difficult as possible um, in terms of, you know, just on-ball defense. And so from that standpoint, if he can't move as well uh, because of the Achilles, that's really going to slow him down. So um, that's got me nervous on his behalf for sure. Hey, Ben, let's look at the bright side. You being a big Marriott points guy, if you're stuck in a hotel, at least you got your points, right? No points, not a single point in the whole deal, Jim. And the referees were mad about that too, by the way. When you call a Dell Technologies advisor, you are talking to somebody who is not waiting for their turn to speak. No, they actually want to hear what you have to say. They're focused on you, ready to give advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and offer tailored solutions powered by Intel vPro platform to keep your small business ready for what's next. Our advisors listen so you know your small business needs have been heard. Call a Dell Technologies advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. Because Johnny Scabs went in on Mark from Humboldt. Let me give you some reaction really quickly before I reset. Romy, watch list. This hater should be on the blocked list. Freaking chump. Signed, Jason Mann. Wow. What a complete D-bag. I'd like to punch Scabs right in the face. What a loser. Lance and Boise. Kind of sums it up right there, right? D-bag. I punch him in the face. Loser. Rome. Johnny Coldsore is on my watch list. Regards the Grim Reaper. All right. He's a D-bag. He's a loser. And he's a cold sore. And people want to punch him in the face. Rome. Don't block scabs. Every group of friends needs that one screw up to make the rest of us look better. 
Like, you're right, honey. I shouldn't have sent Rome nine OJ resets today. Yeah, I know murder is not funny, but did you hear scabs? Brett from Bugaha. Hey, Rome. That Johnny Scabs? He seems like a good person to us. Signed, guys who lie about having a vasectomy so they don't have to use a condom. All right, dude. So you're a D-bag. You're the herp. And you're the guy who lies about having a vasectomy so you don't have to wrap up. All right, so what did this guy do? What did this guy do to engender this much hate? It goes back to an original call from yesterday. Mark from Humboldt made this call. Old had a stroke, hmm. lost the use of his legs for diabetes. So he's been in bed for four months and he went from 220 to 120. And we couldn't find a reason to, to get him to eat. But I lay in bed with him and we listen to your show. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go down to the store and I'm going to get a bag of Old Trapper. Sure enough. We eat a bag of Old Trapper every single time I lay in bed with him and listen to you. That's the only thing he eats. All right, so a couple of things. Number one, my bad. I said, hey, scabs, which I'll get to in a minute. How do you know he had diabetes? Well, Mark did say my dad has diabetes, so let me correct that. Now, memo to my guy Mark and Pops. If you fellows are bedridden and listening to me right now, I got you. I got you. In fact, all of us do, except for that D-bag scabs. So why are we D-bagging scabs? Because all of us heard that call and reacted a certain way, except for scabs. He heard that call, and he reacted this way. The next time you need some free product, how about you leave your old man and his stumps out of it? Just because Dad sucked down too many 72-ounce big golfs, we're supposed to feel bad? I'm not going to sit here and be remorseful for someone that earned a handicap placard through type 2 diabetes. Better yet, I want to know why you're crawling into bed with Dad. Are you eating 10,000 calories a day, too? I'm guessing you cure your booze with an Arby's 5 for 5 and a plate of mashed potatoes with ranch dressing. Unwar laying in bed all day with your dad eating... I mean, scabs. I'm laughing not because it's funny, but I'm shaking my damn head in disbelief over how somebody could hear the call that Mark and Humboldt made and then respond that way. Like, scabs. I'll probably see you in hell. And, and scabs, by the way, you're not that bright. Like, I'm on to you. You call the program, you say things to get people to react to you, you say things to get people to look at you, you say things for shock value. Like, I know what you're about, scabs. It's not funny, it's not cool. And no, this guy did not make that phone call in an attempt to get free product. You know what I bet, scabs? I bet even more important than him getting some free beef jerky even if it's from Old Trapper, would be his father having the use of his legs once again. I bet that's more important. <laughs> Scabs. This guy's like, on war, 
individuals slamming 72-ounce big gulps on their way to getting a handicap placard. I mean, are you an idiot? Scabs, I mean that rhetorically because I think we know the answer. Let's go back to the phones. See, meanwhile, this idiot is running around high-fiving himself because there's nobody to high-five. And this dude could not be happier with himself. I guarantee it. Let's go to Johnny in Texas quickly. Johnny, good to have you. How are you? Hey, Jim. You know how I know I'm not the worst of the worst? Because when that bro from Humboldt made that phone call yesterday, I didn't think anything close to what Scabs just went with. In fact, I felt like it was a pretty good little story. A dude just picked up his blower and decided to tell you about it. But Scabs, seriously, bro, I know you wanted reaction, so you're getting reaction. Dude, you came to Texas recently, but you're too good to hang out with us clones, you know? I knew you were in San Antonio, but you can't, you know, pop in and have a cold one with us because you're too good? Well, dude, seriously, you wouldn't fit in with us, bro. Quit calling. I don't know how this guy even got on the watch list. He should be the, uh, on the do not block list or something. Thanks, Jim. I'm out. Johnny, did you just say, I don't know how this guy got on the watch list, but he should be on the do not block list? This after you complained that, in effect, you just said, do you think you're better than me? You won't hang out with us? Johnny, are you nine? Hey, you think you're better than me? Johnny, I think you tried to throw a punch. I think you tried to hit Johnny Scabs in the face, and you punched yourself in the face. Scabs is going around high-fiving himself, and you're going around punching yourself in the face. Hey, Rome, don't put him on the watch list. Put him on the uh, uh, do-not-block list. All right, and we have ourselves a little hack off now. And that loser scab has never been happier than he is right now. Hey, are you craving some protein after a good workout? You know it. Don't make a shake. Don't eat a bar. Instead, grab a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty and tender, made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire. And it goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Make sure you look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. That way you can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. And if you don't see it, make sure to ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? We are joined right now by Jeremiah Owosu Koromoa. Jeremiah, good to have you on the show. How are you? Hey, what's going on, man? I'm glad to be the guy. You know, appreciate that to be on the show. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time. It's been a few days since you got that call, but how does it feel to be a member of the Cleveland Browns and to officially be in the National Football League? Jeez, man, we'll start with the first one, man. Just to be a Cleveland Brown, man, just means a lot terms of the culture that they are building, in terms of uh, the winning program that uh, I'm being engulfed into, and uh, you know, I'm glad to be there. Um, in terms of being in the NFL, man, uh, you know, it's been a dream of mine, and uh, to have your dreams come to reality um, is an immense pleasure. So, yeah, I appreciate that, Jeremiah. In terms of the draft itself, if you were to go back to Friday night, the moment you got that call from Cleveland, maybe you had to wait a little bit longer than you had expected. So, what was it like when that call did finally come in? What do you remember about that specific moment? Um, well, I, you know, I remember a lot in terms of uh, just the feelings that were going through my body, just the, 
uh, understanding that, you know, I would be selected. But most importantly, I think I, w- I was just um, anxious to get to work. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, as soon as I, you know, I answered the phone call, uh, I was talking with the guys, and, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, what's to come after. I was thinking about uh, what's the next steps. But, uh, you know, I was also enjoying the moment as well. Right. So there was a report that a heart issue had been detected, and that might have been a reason why he fell in the draft. What was your reaction to that report? And then what was the entire draft experience like from that regard? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you get news. You get uh, a lot of news, you know, within um, the draft and the process that's, you know, going through. But, uh, you know, there, there was something that came up in terms of uh, what guys were saying. Uh, but in terms of me, in terms of the personal aspect, there was no really hard issues at all. Um, there was nothing that was uh, too too ticked off. And, uh, uh, you know, we went back to Notre Dame and looked at the medical records and everything. I never really had any um, heart issues or anything going on there. But, um, you know, you hear a lot of things, but, you know, you know, you got to get it from the source. But See, you're telling me it's the source. There's nothing to be concerned about right here. You're not concerned about it, so nobody else should be either. There you go. <laughs> All right, so, you know, I ran down your list of accomplishments at the very top, and your honor is at the top of the conversation, but what jumps out to me even more than the awards is that when you're on the field, the way you get after it, the way you hit, where does that mindset and that mentality come from? Uh, what, what a foundation. Um, you know, even throughout Little League, I mean, I've been playing with uh, certain coaches that have an aggressive mindset in terms of being physical, in terms of always being a competitor, no matter who, um, you know, no matter who the opponent is, and that's that's the art of the game, just being able to respect your opponent enough to uh, give 100% every time and uh, to make sure that you always come with a physical capacity because it's a, it's a physical game. So, uh, you know, my foundation in terms of where I'm from, my foundation in terms of, uh, you know, how I, I carry myself and uh, the things that I want to accomplish in life, you know, are the result of uh, how I play the game. So. You know, Jeremiah, you mentioned that foundation of where you're from. I was going to ask you about that. You grew up in Virginia. You were in the 757. What was life like in the 757? And in terms of foundation, how much did that form the way you are right now and the way you play on the field? It's all about attitude, man. It's coming from the 757. You got a lot of guys with swag. You got a lot of guys with uniqueness, uh, unique athletic ability, but also unique mindsets. Um, you know, I said it before in terms of the competition level. Um, you know, we didn't uh, have the greatest um, resources, I would per se, uh, but in terms of our attitudes, in terms of how we carry ourselves, wanting to leave uh, the place that we are in uh, better than we found it uh, was, you know, a huge thing in terms of how we carried ourselves day in and day out. So it was always a competitive mindset, and it was always a mindset that, um, you know, we have a chip on our shoulders. So. So, Jeremiah, for those who do not know, when you talk about that 757 mentality and how it shows up, we're talking about the guys who came before you. We're talking about guys like Allen Iverson, Michael Vick. When you're growing up there and you've got guys like that who are role models, in terms of competitiveness, drive, fire, grit, how much did that influence you? Man, it influenced a lot, man. Even some of the names you just named, uh, just looking at the guys and, and how they come back and how they give back. And we watch some film on them and uh, just how – relentless they are. I think that's the greatest word. You know, these guys are very relentless in terms of, um, you know, perfecting their craft. And, you know, obviously the school of uh, art they're in, uh, in terms of football, in terms of basketball, in terms of any sport, uh, it's just, you know, it's almost ingrained in terms of uh, where we're from. It's, you know, some, some may say it's in the water. 
<laughs> so exactly right. So let me ask you this: If it's that important, and it is, where you're from, and so much your mentality is about where you're from, you were originally going to go to the University of Virginia, but then you changed to Notre Dame. What happened there, and what was it about Notre Dame that appealed to you so much? Absolutely. Uh, well, first and foremost, I like to hit on the where you from. Where are you from in seven five seven? But you know, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia is a little bit out of the area. You go. Nevertheless. Uh, man, it was it was really about you know authenticity to me, and uh, you know not that UVA wasn't authentic, but in terms of uh, Notre Dame, in terms of Coach Clark Lee and the scheme and uh, how he presented himself, and uh, you know his ability to be able to understand the young man, and uh, not only understand the young man in terms of the football aspect, but also understand the development of the young man off the field uh, was something that was special to me. And on top of uh, Notre Dame's degree value and uh, the academic accomplishments and them being traditionally sound, uh, you know, all those came to, you know, came to mind in terms of my decision. And it was almost a no-brainer, you know, when I really got embedded in the culture and I really uh, understood what I wanted. So. Yeah, Jeremiah, let me go back to Clark Lee, who you mentioned. A couple of months back, I spoke with him, and he did coach you at Notre Dame before he took over as head coach at Vanderbilt. Man, I could not have been more impressed with what I had heard from him. In fact, I'm a middle-aged dude, but I felt like putting on a helmet and going to battle for this guy. Like, what was he like as a coach, and what did you take away from your time with him? Well, he's kind of the perfect coach that you want, man. He's um, he's understandable, but most importantly, um, he's a guy that, that is not – overly on one side of um, the coaching aspect. He's not uh, too much on the, you know, um, tough love. or He's not too much aggressive. He's not too much calm. But he's kind of like in the middle. He, he knows that it's a time and a place for everything. Um, and, you know, that, that's truly an art when a coach can understand that it's a time and a place for everything. It's a time to do this. It's a time to do that. And that's what he really taught us in terms of being a leader. Uh, is also just being humble, just being a student first. Um, being the same man every day, um, you know, taught us the art of words in terms of competition that, you know, you can't listen to certain people that, you know, may, may praise you too high because you may uh, go in the world that is um, not, not really uh, what it appears and put yourself in, a, you know, some type of facade. And he taught us a lot of, you know, small, thing, small things that, um, that I would carry in uh, for life, man. You know, Jeremiah, I'm talking to you right now, and it seems like it might be relatively easy. For instance, when I look at what you bring to it athletically, and then you have this great mindset, you think, you know, this is all pretty logical. It's all part of the process. But the fact of the matter is, it wasn't easy. As an example, as a freshman, you were on the scout team. Then you broke your foot starting your college career that way, and that could really frustrate a young athlete. It could derail some guys, but those around you said that you just stayed locked in, you continued to learn, and you kept improving. When you look back, what were those first two years in college like for you? How challenging were they? Man, they were rough, man. Uh, especially, you know, uh, coming from a place like we're talking about again, coming from 757 where, uh, you know, it's always competition and you're always, uh, you know, if you're good, you're on the top of the food chain. And uh, to take a step back to be able to almost uh, have a fresh start and restart and, you know, uh, look at the, the things that are around you and, you know, Looking at people play, looking at people, you know, excel while you just watch it. It's it, it's a tough uh, aspect of the game, and um, but I had to understand early that you know it's not the um, good things that happen that uh, make a man better, but it's the bad things that happen and how that man, the persevered through those things, and it's his resilience uh, that will push him forward. So you know, it's a, it, those are tough years, but all in all, man, when you look back at it and you look back at how much perseverance that took. Um, you know, you, you appreciate it, and you, you appreciate the game of football. You play the game of football even with 
you know, a heightened attitude because of your appreciation for it and all the lessons that it teaches you. So, so I want to ask you a couple of things before you go. Having said that, I think that you're wise beyond your years. As a young person, I think you've got a different kind of mindset. For instance, when I was your age, when I was in college, I'll tell you what I was thinking about. I was thinking about me. I was thinking about me. Now, you're known for your work in the community, but I want to bring this up. When you were at Notre Dame, as a student athlete, you would speak at juvenile detention centers. You would go to churches. Why was that something that was so important to you at that age and even now? Yeah, absolutely, man. It goes back to foundation, man. You know, growing up in the household, my mother raised us uh, pretty well, and my, my father was there as well. Um, and both of those um, key people in my life, very spiritual, and they, and they led us in the right direction in terms of uh, spirituality, not just talking about the Bible or not just talking about a spiritual book, uh, but really talking about the appreciation to understand and grow your inner man. Um, and that's something that's important to me. I'm not trying to push my beliefs on anyone, uh, but the aspect of becoming a better person, becoming a better man, becoming a better woman, uh, those things are important to me and ultimately uh, are important to the world um, in its growth. So, um, yeah, the foundation. Respect. All right, so this is an enormous Cleveland Browns house. I love that team. I love that organization. I love that town. I love that fan base. And that's come from somebody who has done this a long, long time. So tell the fans exactly what can they expect from number 28 this season. What are they getting in you as a player and a man? Man, I mean, they're getting action. Um, you know, we're obviously having an interview. We're speaking of words, but I'm ready to get to work. Um, they're, they're getting a guy that is committed, that is 100% ready to work, 100% uh, ready to learn, 100% ready to lead. Uh, they're getting a guy that is agile, that, is, that, that has a, a chip on his shoulder, um, you know, and that is really understanding um, in terms of uh, what the Cleveland Browns is trying to bring forth in terms of their culture and in terms of ultimately uh, leading to the Super Bowl. I absolutely, I love that response. They're getting action. Like, we're getting words right now because it's an interview, but they're going to get action. <laughs> Jeremiah, quick follow. Like, the chip on the shoulder from your standpoint, you're a really humble guy. You're a very humble guy, very appreciative guy. you got great perspective. Where is your chip on your shoulder coming from? My chip on my shoulder comes from what I was speaking on earlier in terms of my appreciation for the game. Uh, my appreciation to, to grow, to understand more, to, to be the greatest, to um, be humble, a humble worker. That My tip on the shoulder, it doesn't come from a specific situation, but it comes from a bunch of um, experiences and a bunch of situations that have happened over a period of time uh, that have led to my, um, my appreciation for football um, and also my appreciation to understand the game. So, um, yeah. Dude, you know what? Normally when you hear chip, you think that it's kind of like negative fuel or adversity. <laughs> this sounds like a positive chip. Is there such a thing as a positive chip on your shoulder? Is that, is that what it is? Are you running on positive fuel? Look, positive, negative, both of the energies can help you grow. Uh, I would say it's a, it's a um, combination of both. Good. I like it. It's He's hard. a... He's a buck. Yes, sir. I like that. He's a Buckus Award winner and ACC Defensive Player of the Year, a unanimous All-American as well. The Browns got themselves a linebacker. Jeremiah, great to have you on the show, man. Thank you so much. Let's do it again soon. Yes, sir. Much love. Thank you, man. Much love. I appreciate that. Well done. Rashawn Slater. Rashawn, nice to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well this morning. How are you? Man, I'm great. 
I'm doing great, and it's nice to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Listen, if you would, take me back to Thursday when the Chargers make that call and they draft you with the 13th pick overall. I know that they were pumped to pick you. What do you remember about picking up that phone call and receiving it? Man, I uh, it was a lot of chaos. Like, you know, watching the draft for so many years, it always seems like it goes on forever. But, like, on Thursday afternoon, for me, it was just flying by. Um, with all the tradebacks that were happening around 10, 11, 12, too, uh, I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. And so when I finally got that call, it was just relief at first. Um, and then, you know, talking to talking to the GM and the coaches, I started to get super excited just realizing all the weapons they had. And, you know, they got Justin, some of my old teammates were there, and I just realized it couldn't be a more perfect fit. Rashawn Slater joining us. You know, I want to talk about that in a minute, but listen, I understand that you've got a lot of work in front of you. I know you're focused on the next step, but when you think about that journey, when you think about the work you've put in, when you think about everything you've done to put yourself in that position to be drafted, and that moment finally comes, I mean, what does that feel like? Do you allow yourself a chance to celebrate, reflect on that, or are you already on to the next thing? Yeah, really, it's got to be on to the next thing. Uh, the way it is with like rookie minicamp being right around the corner and me now knowing the expectations for me for next season, um, I really just got to get back to work. But at the same time, like it, I wasn't even able to like process what happened to me on that night just because we had to go talk, you know, do interviews and do some media stuff. And then when I got to my hotel with my family, it was so late that like, I really like, it really started to hit me like the following couple of days. Um, so that's been really nice, but at the same time, like kind of gotten back to work, back in the swing of things with my training. It doesn't sound like you have a lot of time to really celebrate that thing and kind of reflect on that, like you're already right back at it. Now, you mentioned your family. If we were to go back a little bit, your father, Reggie, is the all-time leading rebounder at the University of Wyoming. He played pro basketball for 12 years, including eight in the NBA. I'm curious, how much did you learn from him about what it takes to be a great athlete and the mentality that's required to be great? I've learned so much from him. Ever since I was a little kid, uh, he's been taking me and my older brother out doing basketball drills in the yard and stuff like that. And so, like, he was always trying to coach us up. And then when I really started to pursue football for myself, that wisdom he had from his experience, it was invaluable because he just taught me how to take care of my body. He taught me, like, the value of just long-term consistency in my training and stuff like that. And then just, like, tons of little things, like, stuff that applies to rebounding a lot of it applies to o-line play like leverage hand usage and stuff like that and so he's definitely been like a huge influence on me so it's been really valuable to have him Rashawn Slater joining us. You know, your high school team won three games in your final three seasons. And I'm kind of curious, like when you're a young guy and you're coming up and you're competitive and you so badly want to win, it's easy to get demoralized or get down. And then you don't want to be selfish, right? You don't want to be there just for yourself. I'm kind of curious how you were able to process that. And was there something or some things that you learned during that time that made you a better player? Like how did you process all of that? Yeah, for sure. Um, again, that a lot of that being able to be resilient through that just came from my dad, and he taught me the importance of having a vision and that it wasn't always going to come immediately. And so, you know, losing sucked. It always sucks no matter where you are. But during that time, I feel like it just taught me how to be able to ignore that and just focus on what I can control. And really just I feel like that period of my life where we were losing games and I wasn't seeing the benefits of my hard work, like that kind of taught me just character-wise um, how to face and how to deal with adversity. 
Man, that is so key. I think that's so important what you just said. I think there's a lot of people listening right now, young athletes or parents of young athletes, that maybe they're young athletes, not in the best situation, but you can't control that, right? But you can't control your work and your attitude and how you approach it. And then last season had to be really challenging, and you decided ultimately to opt out of the 2020 season. What was that decision-making process like? Because I know your teammates are your brothers, so I'm curious Mm -hmm. what it was like to be away from them, and then what went into that decision? Yeah, I mean, definitely a really challenging decision. Kind of was made for me initially with the Big Ten canceling the season. Right. And so once they did that, uh, my mindset was, I'm going to get ready for my rookie year. And so I immediately hired an agent and started training. And I was training uh, in Dallas for three weeks whenever they reinstated the season. And at that point, that's when the really hard decision came in. And I talked a lot to my coaches at Northwestern and my teammates at Northwestern and my parents. And just kind of talking through it, you know, I ended up making the decision that there was so much uncertainty surrounding, you know, how college football would be played that it would be best for me to just keep on focusing on my training. Um, but like watching them, you know, on TV, it was, it was really weird and it was hard, especially early on, you know, seeing those guys, seeing clips from practice and games, like it was hard to watch, but at the same time that kind of motivated me to make sure I wasn't wasting any of this time and that I was using it to its fullest. I appreciate that response. Rashawn Slater joining us. Now, Northwestern is such a unique place, like a really, really good football program and an absolutely amazing academic institution. That was your first offer when you were in high school. When you received that offer, how much, though, did you really know about the school and the program? Almost nothing. Um, like, I'm a, I'm a Houston kid, and so Northwestern, like the first thought that popped in my head was Northwestern State over in Louisiana. <laughs> Great. So, like, yeah, and so – Whenever they reached out, they were the first one to like ask about my academic transcript and stuff, and I was like, "Who are these guys?" <laughs> but then to go to go from that to committing to them, like within a matter of just a few months, kind of goes to show like the in, the impression they made on me when I visited and stuff like that. Speaking of impressions, back in March, you showed up at your pro day and you blew everybody away with 33 reps on the bench, a 33-inch vert, 4-8-8-40 time. So how pleased were you with that performance? And then what kind of a reaction did you hear from scouts and teams after that day? I was pleased with it. Uh, definitely showed that you know I had been working and I had you know, kind of transformed myself during this time off uh, from playing. And so I felt like it was just good to show that, and I was relieved to have it over with because now I don't have to worry about running fast ever again. I can just play O-line. But, yeah, I mean, scouts said that they were impressed with the workout, and I I feel like it definitely um, proved to them that I had been working this whole time. Yeah, but, dude, you might not love running, although you ran really fast for somebody your size. I know you're not going to tell me you don't love the weight room, right? You love being in the weight room. Oh, no, I love the weight room. That's my natural habitat. That is your natural habitat. For instance, there's a video of you that appears to show you front squatting 495 for three reps. Seems to me that would be a monster back squat, but to do that as a front squat and to do it for multiple reps seems kind of crazy to me. You don't just walk into the weight room one day and put that on the bar and bang it out. That's a product of a lot of work. Like, the weight room, is that... Did you convince yourself to love it because you need to and that's part of your job, or do you really love being in there? No, I really love being in there. Like, I feel like the environment in that clip of the weight room just tells you everything you need to know. Like, when you're on a team and you guys are all working for the same thing, 
the weight room is just such a fun place to be in. Like everyone's rooting for each other. You can be as crazy as you want to be. It's really just a party. So I, I've always loved it. With Sean Slater joining us, it's really just a party. Listen, you're going to join a Chargers team that has its franchise quarterback in Justin Herbert. He's coming off a Rookie of the Year award-winning season. How excited are you to be a part of this young, exciting offense? And from what you know about it, how's it look to you? It's super exciting, honestly. Um, like you said, you know, having Herbert there, having just all the young talent, but at the same time having all those veterans, especially in the O-line room, um, I feel like that's going to be so important for me early on, just just picking those guys' brains and learning from them. I couldn't have chosen a better situation to be in. Hey, Sean, i got to ask you about Eliza. Who is Eliza? <laughs> uh, Eliza is my bearded dragon. All right, so, so uh, tell me. Tell me, like, what's her backstory? <clears throat> Where did you get her? What's she like? All right, well, uh, you know, growing up, I always wanted a pet bearded dragon. My mom would never let me. And then my my landlord in college was allergic to like cats and dogs. And so I couldn't get one of those, but I just wanted a pet. And so I finally realized my dream uh, in like summer 2019 of getting Eliza. There was a, uh, like a reptile expo in the Chicago area. And so me and my friends drove down there and it was love at first sight. <laughs> so dude, like what, what is a bearded dragon like as a pet? I mean, does she have like a personality? Yeah, I would say she does, honestly. Like, <clears throat> a lot of the times, she'll just, sometimes she'll just sit there, like, motionless for hours, and it's like, is she even alive? But then other times, like, there's been times where I've been trying to meet with teams on Zoom, and she's just been going crazy in the background, and I'm, like, embarrassed because she's, like, kind of trying to get out and jump all over everything. So, you know, she's very kind of split in the way she is, but I always enjoy having her around. She always brightens my day. All right, so like right when you think it can't get any more wild than that, is it true? Do you really make her a salad? And do you make her a salad every single day? Yeah, of course. That's what she eats most of the time. I feed her bugs uh, a couple times a week, but the majority of it is salad, and that's me making it. Dude, like dressing or no dressing? Oh, no dressing. I'll, I'll put some like supplement dust on top of it, though, to make <laughs> sure she's healthy some supplement dust and the bugs man you catch the bugs yourself or you buy the bugs <laughs> no that'd be awesome though i buy them dude you're committed you are committed to eliza like what's how long do you think eliza is gonna live uh you, you read online it's anywhere from like six to 12 years she's about two years now so we've got some time how big is she uh i'd say she's about from head to end of her tail like probably about 16 inches is she going to get Which much? Is like kind of a, a, kind of a smaller she, adult, to be how, honest with you. I was going to say, how much bigger will she get? She's fully grown, but like you can see him all the way up to like 25 inches. So she's not terribly big. Hey, man, you can tell I'm into this. We should have like a bearded dragon <laughs> combine. <laughs> yeah, uh, she'd be pretty fast. When she wants to go, she can go. Or She'll a pro day. Or a pro day for Eliza, so she can just kick ass and then be amongst all the great bearded dragons. So, <laughs> Rashawn Slater joining us. Kind of went off the beaten path on that, but that's really interesting. The 13th pick overall in the draft. Welcome to L.A., my man. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. And I know you will, but take care of Eliza. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me today. Good night now!